0: Let us take our Bibles this evening to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 18. We're at a season of the year in which we celebrate the Christ event, in which we celebrate the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 18 tonight in light of the death of Christ. Uh, It's very fitting that we do that today, being it's a Wednesday being the fact that we know that Jesus died on a Wednesday, that he spent three days and three nights in the tomb, that he would have resurrected shortly around six sometime around 6 p.m. Uh, Saturday evening, uh, which, as that would pass, would be the first day of the week. We know the women would have been coming to the tomb while it was yet dark, uh, sometime our, our, what we would consider our Saturday evening, but obviously their first day of the week. And so to take a moment this evening in the midst of everything we're dealing with and to focus our minds on Christ, because that's where our minds need to be. We need to be focused on Christ. We need to focus on what Christ did for us, our Passover lamb. And I want to look at Hebrews 2, 9 to 18 this evening and ask you, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Verse 9 begins of Hebrews chapter 2, but we do see him. Who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to his angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Notice that very very first phrase in chapter 2 and verse 9. But we do see Him. Now, obviously we know, who is that Him? Well, namely Jesus. But we see Jesus. Because of what the Lord has done, we behold Him. We see Him. And the word see does not mean that we just casually glance at Him. The word means that we look upon Him with understanding. We recognize that in Him is something that we cannot possibly grasp completely. We look upon Him in faith. We look upon Him in trust. We look upon Him in wonder. We look upon Him in awe. And we look upon Him in worship. And all of that is wrapped up in that one little phrase, We see Him. We see Jesus. And I ask that question this evening. Do you see him today. Has the Spirit of God removed the veils from your eye so that you can see Jesus? We see Jesus. Notice there the human name. At his conception, at the uh, conception within Mary's womb, and later at his birth, the angels announced, thou, will, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1 Matthew 1.21 Indeed, we have a Savior, a human Savior. Now, this human Savior is unique because He's not just human, but He's also God. He is the God-man. Philippians 2 tells us that He humbled Himself. He set aside His eternal glory. He set aside the outworking of His power. He set aside the majesty of heaven. And He... Added to His divine nature a human nature. Though free from sin, added a human nature. So that He could die in our place. So that He could be our Passover Lamb. So that He could be the one who could save us from sin. Redeem us from hell. Make atonement between us and God. Justify us. Make us as if we've never sinned before a holy God. Be our propitiation. Be our substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And so as we examine Jesus tonight, as we look at Jesus, I would like to consider six things that when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see about him. Six things that I'd like you to consider about Jesus this evening. First of all, I'd like you to see that he is the suffering God. Jesus is the suffering God. Notice there in our text, it tells us, he came, he was made a little lower then the angels for a while. Why? Because of the suffering of death. I quoted from Philippians a moment ago. Again, Philippians 2 5 to 8 tells us that he humbled himself as a servant and became obedient to the point of death. In order to die for humankind, Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a man that was less than the form of angels. Think about that for a moment. Here is the God of the universe. Here is the creator of all things who took on a form that was less than the angelic form. Now we know that angels are wonderful creatures that God has made. Angels are uniquely created. Supernatural entities. And here's us. We're we're created a little lower than the angels. We have limitations that angels don't have. And yet, God loved us so much that not only did He send His Son, but He sent His Son as a man. He sent His Son as a human being. He let His Son take on human flesh. And for a period of 30-some years... He took upon himself limitations that made him less than an angel. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of the suffering of death. That proves his humanity. He shared in our mortality. He participated in our sufferings that so often accompany death. You know, we we, we look at the situation that we're facing. We, we look at this crisis. We look at this uh, virus that's spreading. And we see death. And we see suffering. Yet, my friends, we have a Savior who took on flesh and became the suffering God so that He might redeem us not from physical death, but that he might redeem us from spiritual death, that he might redeem us from separation from God. The fact of the matter is death is real. And whether it comes today or it comes tomorrow or it comes down the road, all of us are going to die at some point. And I don't say that to be flippant. I don't say that to be nonchalant about it. But the reality is all of us are going to die. And either the blood of Christ is applied to the doorpost of your heart or it's not. And if it's not... His wrath is not going to pass over you. And you're going to die in your sins. And if there was ever a time to be looking to Jesus, if there was ever a time for people to be looking to Jesus, it is now. When death is so prominent, when death is staring them in the face. Look to Jesus, who suffered in our place. This suffering is demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. His anguish was not just felt physically, but all the way down to the pit of his belly. You know what that's like. That pit in the bottom of your stomach that aches or hurts. That feeling of sickness over a situation. He's so deeply grieved, he's grieved to the point of death. Luke twenty-two forty-four says, being found in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Here is the suffering God. Here is the suffering servant. Here is Jesus, not even yet on the cross, but already going through so much suffering and anguish so that we would never have to know the suffering of hell and the suffering of the lake of fire, the suffering of separation from God for all eternity. Secondly, as we see Jesus, we not only see Jesus as the, as the suffering God, we see Jesus as the Savior. Jesus as the Savior. Notice the text goes on to tell us in Hebrews 2, verse 9 through 18, first he came, became a man to suffer this, because of the suffering of death. Now notice it goes on to tell us that he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death for everyone. See, Jesus is the Savior. That word, taste, means that he came to know or experience something. And what did he experience? He experienced death. For who? For some, for a few, no, for everyone. For all humanity. And when it says he died, that word there doesn't mean that he passed out. It doesn't mean that he faked his death. It means that he suffered physical death. His soul and spirit Separated from his physical body. His physical body stopped breathing. His physical body's heart stopped beating. His physical brain stopped functioning. He was 100% dead. And that moment prior to his death, in which he cried in John 19 verse 30, it is finished. It is at that moment... That he gave up his spirit. Notice the text says John 19.30. He said it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He experienced the separation of his soul and spirit from his body. His body went into the tomb. His soul and spirit went down into Sheol. Sheol. That place that contained an upper chamber and a lower chamber. The upper chamber was known as paradise. The lower chamber was known as hell. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29 to 31, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead. He spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Acts chapter 2, verse 29 to 31. Quoting from the Old Testament, King David said that Christ was going to die. His body was going to go into the tomb, but his soul and spirit was going to go to Sheol. When Christ died, he first went into that upper chamber, that place known as Abraham's bosom. Read Luke 16 to see about Abraham's bosom. That's where all the believers prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. That's where all believers went. And that's where Christ went. And he proclaimed victory. And then he crossed over that gulf. And then he went into hell itself. And while he was there in hell he proclaimed victory over those angelic creatures, those what are now demonic creatures that are reserved in everlasting chains of darkness in Tartarus, proclaimed victory over them. But he didn't stay in Sheol. His soul and spirit departed. Seventy-two hours after his body was laid in the ground, his soul and spirit left Sheol, re-entered that body, and that body gloriously resurrected from that tomb. He was not abandoned to hell and nor did his flesh suffer decay. And notice he experienced death for everyone. He didn't die for some, he didn't die for few, he died for all. 2 Corinthians 5:15 says, "He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf." How about you tonight? as you're looking at Jesus, Because you're looking at Jesus as the suffering God. You're looking at Jesus as the Savior. Do you understand what it means that He died for you? It means that you're no longer to live for yourself. You're no longer to live a selfish, self-centered life. You're supposed to live a life that glorifies Him. You're supposed to live a life that elevates Him. A life that praises Him. Because He died and rose again on your behalf. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned. That tells us right there, He died for each and every sinner. 1 John 2.2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those, the sins of the whole world. He died for all. Sadly, not all will be saved. But my friends, the text makes clear that through His death, He will bring many sons to glory. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. While not all will be saved, He will save only those who repent of their sins. Only those who have placed their faith in the gospel, that is, Jesus died, shed his blood, buried, rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, will be saved. And it is only the saved that are going to be glorified. And that's what Jesus suffering. That's what his death is all about. His suffering, his death, is the means of glorifying the believer. Those whom he justified, he also Glorified. Thirdly, Jesus not only, we not only see Jesus as the suffering God, we not only see him as the Savior, but thirdly, we need to see Jesus on that cross, we need to see him as the sanctifier. We need to see him as the sanctifier. Again, notice the phrase, because we go back to our text, it says that he became a man, he humbled himself, why? To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, what does that possibly mean, that Jesus came to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings? Well, first of all, the term author means a founder or a champion. So he's the founder of their salvation. He's the champion of their salvation. But in what way? He made perfect to perfect the champion, to perfect the founder of their salvation. How how could he be made perfect? Well, we need to understand that the word perfect here, teleasse, does not mean sinless. If this was the case, then that would mean that by suffering death, Jesus became sinless. But we know that Jesus already was sinless. He had to be sinless. In order to be our sin offering, He Himself had to have no sin. He already was the sinless sacrifice for sin. And so as we dig into this word, we find out that the word perfect, or the Greek word teleose, was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the consecration of the priesthood. Exodus 29, verse 33. Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination, their perfection, if you will, their tilia, or, excuse me teleosai. But a layman shall not eat, them, not eat them because they are holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, you shall ordain them, again, perfect them, through seven days. And so the word perfect... This word, teleose, means to consecrate for priestly service. So when the term is used here in Hebrews, it's to refer to qualifying someone for priestly service. So by suffering death, Jesus not only becomes the author or the champion, the founder of our salvation, but he now becomes qualified to serve as our high priest. And because He's our High Priest, Jesus is the Sanctifier. We said first, when you see Jesus, Jesus is the suffering God. Secondly, when you see Jesus on that cross, He's the Savior. And third, as you look at Jesus, as you see Jesus, you need to see Him as the Sanctifier. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? First Corinthians one thirty, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. First Peter one two to three. Now, what does it mean to sanctify, or what is sanctification referring to? Sanctification means to make holy, to make free from sin, to purify, to declare or render something holy, blessed, or grace. And so, when God deems something as sanctified, He's deeming it as holy, He's deeming it as sinless, He's deeming it to be used for His intended purposes. And by the way, holiness is the foundational attribute of God's nature. And so he says. If you're going to have a relationship with me. You have to be holy. And so. By Jesus. Becoming the. the per, to By Jesus being perfected. Or consecrated. As a priest. The author of our salvation. The founder of our salvation. By suffering death was qualified to be our high priest. That means, as high priest, He is our sanctifier. He makes us holy so that we can have a relationship with the Holy God. He sets us apart for His intended use. You know, all through the Scriptures, whenever God sanctified something, whether it be an object, animal, the sanctuary, clothing, people, whatever, it always referred to setting them aside for His intended purpose. Is God using you for His purposes? Are you submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ so that He can use you for His purpose? He's made you holy. So are you surrendered to that? By the way, when He makes you holy, you cannot become unholy. Praise God for that. That's why He is continually, as we've seen in our First John series, He's continually making intercession for us. He's continually pointing to that bowl of His blood there in the heavenly temple. He's continually pointing back to it and saying, they're justified, they're sanctified, they're holy. We can't be deemed unholy. I mean, look at Israel. For all their sin, for all the rebellion, God still declares them a holy nation. If you're looking at the Hebrews text in chapter 2, there's three quotes from the Old Testament in verses 12 and 13. Paul gives us these three quotes to illustrate the relationship between the believers and Jesus, the sanctifier. First, he, Paul quotes from Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two: I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Right there by quoting that Psalm 2222, 22, he's emphasizing the relationship of believers to the Messiah through his resurrection. Notice what Matthew 1250 says. For whosoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, my mother. Matthew 2810. Do not be afraid, go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. John chapter 20 verse 17. I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. By calling us brethren, he's calling us family. He's identifying us not only with his life, not only with his death, but also with his resurrection. Then Paul quotes Isaiah 8, 17. I will put my trust in him. Now, in the Isaiah passage, the prophet was declaring his trust in God to deliver Israel. Paul uses the quote to demonstrate that it is Jesus, while he was humiliated, put his trust in God to deliver him. Now, if Jesus could put his trust in God to deliver him, can't we do the same? Can't we do the same? Shouldn't we be doing the same? And then finally, he quotes Isaiah 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, Isaiah 8.18, he's demonstrating the intimacy between Jesus and his sanctified ones. We are his children. We are God's children, the Father's children, and the Father has given us to Jesus. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17.6. Since the children of flesh and blood, Jesus likewise, Hebrews tells us, also partook of the same. We were flesh and blood. So in order to redeem us, He Himself also had to be flesh and blood. And He likewise, as the Hebrews 2 tells us, also partook of the same. What does that mean? Well, that means in order for Jesus to be the sanctifier, He had to take on something that was not natural to His own nature. See, God by nature is spirit, John 4, 24. He does not naturally have flesh and blood. But in the fullness of time, God the Son added to his divine nature a human nature. And so we see three things so far when we see Jesus. We see the suf- Jesus the suffering God. We see Jesus the Savior. We see thirdly, Jesus the Sanctifier. And fourthly, I'd like you to see that Jesus is the Satan conqueror. Jesus is the Satan conqueror. Notice the text tells us that he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In order to render Satan powerless over humanity, Jesus had to die. He had to shed his blood. He had to be buried. He had to go to hell. He had to be resurrected three days and three nights later. And because he is risen... He cannot die again. Now understand, if he, had been not, if he is not raised, our faith is in vain. Satan is not defeated. But Romans 6, 9 says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. You see, his death paid the ransom of sin. He didn't pay that ransom to the devil, by the way. He paid that ransom to God. We owed God not Satan, because of our sin. And while his death paid the ransom of sin, his resurrection validates that God's wrath is appeased. Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 12, When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, His resurrection renders Satan, the one who has the power of death, He renders him powerless. 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, but the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You know, the fact that Christ is in heaven as our great high priest, as our intercessor, every time that old devil comes along and tries to cast an accusation at us, every time that old devil tries to come around and make some preposterous statement about our sin, Jesus is right there. Once again, Defeating him time and time and time again. He defeated him on the cross. And there's coming a great day when he will defeat him for all time and eternity. When he will take that old devil, that old liar, and he will cast him in the lake of fire. Satan's still a powerful being. But believer, he has no power over you. When you see Jesus, you see Jesus on that cross... He is the Satan conqueror. The next time you're tempted to sin, you look to that cross and say, hey, here's the one who defeated Satan. Here's the one who conquered Satan. Text tells us, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. You see, when Adam sinned, he brought death on all humanity, Romans 5, 12. But understand... The first sinner was Satan. The first tempter to sin was Satan. And when he sinned, he brought death. And that power of death doesn't mean he has the authority over who dies. Let's make that very clear. Satan doesn't cause anyone to die. The gift of life and the, and the power over death is solely in the hands of our God. But when it talks about Satan having uh, the power over death... It means that He's drawing people into sin. He's dooming people to spiritual and eternal death in the lake of fire. So we've seen four things about Jesus. We've seen He's the suffering God. He's the Savior. He's the sanctifier. He's the Satan conqueror. And number five, our text tells us that Jesus came to free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Here we see Jesus is the slave Redeemer. He is the slave redeemer. To free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. To free means that someone has been enslaved. You can't be freed unless you've been enslaved. And we're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we were all enslaved to death. Death is a specter that hovers over every waking moment of our lives. But we're not just talking about physical death, folks. We're talking about spiritual death. Separation from God and eternal death, damnation in the lake of fire. And through the death and the burial and the shed blood, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are free, not just from death. We're free from spiritual death. We're free from eternal death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, When this perishable will put on the imperishable, when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, we don't need to fear physical death. Everybody's, oh, I'm afraid to die, I'm afraid to die. Why? We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Now I'm not saying we should all hurry it up. God's put us here, and God has a purpose for us here. God has a plan for us while he has us here. But understand, my friends, that physical death is merely the means to enter the presence of the Lord if you're a child of God. And because he's redeemed you, you're no longer spiritually dead. You're not fearful of future judgment. There is no future judgment. You're not going to be cast into the lake of fire, you're not been sent to hell. Because Jesus is the slave redeemer. The slave redeemer. By enduring his humiliation, Jesus became, quote, a merciful and faithful high priest. I'd like you to see number six, and finally, as you see Jesus on that cross, that Jesus is the sympathizer. Jesus is the sympathizer. Throughout all eternity, the Son of God existed. But at the moment of his death, he took on the ministry of high priest. And as high priest... The text tells us that he is merciful in his dealings with humanity. He is faithful in his observance of his priestly duties. He is able to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What does propitiation mean? It means to appease or satisfy, to make amends for a wrong that's been committed. And let's be clear, there's five things you need to understand here about propitiation. One, there's an offense that has to be removed. That's your sin. Your sin needed to be removed. Second, there's an offended party. You offended God when you sinned. Third, there's an offering. There's an offering. That's Christ. Or the sacrifice that's going to make atonement for the sin or the offense. There's the offending party. That's us. The offending party. And number five, there's a high priest who offers a sacrifice. I'll repeat those five things again. There's an offense, sin must be removed. There's an offended party, that's God, who needs to be pacified. There's an offending party, that's us, who need to acknowledge our guilt. There's a sacrifice, that's Jesus. And there's a high priest, also Jesus, who makes the sacrifice. He became the sin offering. Now in the Old Testament in that, old, in that earthly tabernacle there was a thing called the Ark of the Covenant and on top of that Ark of the Covenant was a cover called the Mercy Seat. But that Mercy Seat was representative of God's throne in heaven where He sits. And in the Old Testament whenever the blood was sprinkled once a year upon that Mercy Seat God saw it as a covering for sin and extended mercy to those that were, were represented by that blood. Interestingly the Greek term for propitiation means the place of atonement, the place of mercy. When Jesus died and shed his blood, his blood was the means of expiation by which God's wrath was covered. See, he didn't just cover your sin. As your high priest, he covers God's wrath. He's both the propitiator and the propitiation. He's both the high priest and the sacrificial lamb. He was made like in all things, like his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He purified you from sin. He granted you eternal redemption. He cleansed, cleansed your conscience from dead works. He put away your sin. He perfected you. Again, that again, that perfecting there in Hebrews ten fourteen that we're talking about isn't making you sinless, but making you a part of that royal priesthood. And he grants you access to God. He was suffered. He was tempted. And because of that, he is able to help those who are suffering and aid those who are tempted. He is your sympathizer. You don't need to turn to anyone or anything else in this life, in your time of struggle, in your time of trial, in your time of temptation, and whatever it may be. You just first and foremost got to turn to Jesus. And so as we consider the death of Christ, as you look at that cross, and I think it's good for all of us to have that go-back-to-Calvary moment. When we go back to Calvary, what do we see? We see Jesus. Jesus, who is the suffering God, the Savior, the Sanctifier, the Satan Conqueror, the Slave Redeemer, and our Sympathizer. Praise God for what he did. Praise God for that awesome sacrifice that Jesus made on that cross. And I challenge you, as you go through your day, as you go through your days and nights, as you go into the weeks and months ahead, don't take your eyes off Calvary. Behold Christ. See him for who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, I ask and pray this evening as we've had somewhat of a little different Wednesday evening that, Father, we would take the time to look to Calvary. Attention is drawn everywhere right now, Father. And somehow people think just because we're not in church that we're not the church. We're still the church. And we don't stop celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ just because we're not together. We can look to that day when we are together. But while we're separated, while we're apart, I pray that we might be together in looking to Jesus, the author, the founder of our faith. May we see Jesus, and by seeing him, may we be comforted, may we be strengthened, may we be blessed. We pray in his name. Amen.